Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Today, pharmacist Jeff Wall discusses the documented risk of bleeding for patients who take an anticoagulant and aspirin. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the podcast where we try to give you the latest information uh, hot off the press. We really try to take a look at stuff that's been out only in the last couple of weeks or a couple of months that we feel here in the uh, Game Changers group is most likely to impact uh, the average practitioner's daily life and you know might mean a, mean a change in how they you know care for their patients, basically. And we really try to focus on pharmacotherapy here for both prescribers and pharmacists. So welcome to the show. Um, if you are a longtime listener, you know, thanks for keep listening. So today we are going to talk about a paper that just came out on September 19th, um, and it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, so I was kind of glad to run by this. Uh, it's always nice when, when you uh, run into a, a paper that it's like, hey, yeah, I've been talking about that for a long time. So, um, so I, I, was, I was happy to see up this paper released. Um, it was published in uh, JAMA Open Network, uh, again, just a few weeks ago, uh, the assessment of an intervention to reduce aspirin prescribing for patients receiving warfarin for anticoagulation. So uh, the reason this is a hobby horse of mine is, I mean, the retrospective studies, I think, are very clear that when you add aspirin to anticoagulation, you dramatically increase the risk of bleed. Uh, The authors in the paper uh, that we're going to talk about actually note previous studies that suggest, you know, an up to twofold uh, a risk of major bleeding when you combine even baby aspirin with with warfarin. And if you kind of knock that out per thousand patients, that means per thousand patients combination therapy might, might add up to 20 major bleeding events and one to two deaths per year uh, compared with warfarin monotherapy. And I know some numbers may not seem very high to you, but when you consider that a lot of aspirin is used in primary prevention, so patients who don't have a history of coronary disease um, or, or stroke or anything, their benefit is so low that in, in almost all those cases, the risk you know, far outsees the benefit of being on, on aspirin for primary prevention. And I would argue even for secondary prevention, uh, you know, that, and I think the guidelines say this as well, if you take a look at the American College of Cardiology guidelines, they mentioned that, you know, when someone who has atrial fibrillation who was on an aspirin for stable coronary disease, and so they haven't had a heart attack in the last couple of years or, you know, uh, or a revascularization, that if you start them on an anticoagulant, uh, you usually can stop the aspirin. Because again, it's not that antithrombotics don't have uh, effects uh, to decrease vascular disease. And in fact, we know that in the 1970s and early 1980s, they tried randomized control trials of warfarin in patients with, with coronary disease and found it worked. Just the bleeding rate was sky high. And so when several studies came out that said, well, aspirin gives you about the same benefit and the, and the bleeding rate is way lower, we've kind of abandoned antithrombotics up until recently. And we'll talk a little bit about that down the road. Um, we've kind of abandoned, we kind of abandoned antithrombotics and went to antiplatelet agents. But again, you know, antithrombotics certainly have some benefit in, in coronary disease. So really adding the two together uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a lot of cases. So the authors of, of the paper, and this is a paper that was done in Michigan, um, I kind of outline a lot of this. And I, and I think, you know, their introduction notes that really, you know, in patients who have, you know, who've just had an acute coronary syndrome, who've had multiple uh, coronary events, and are some of the patients who have some of the older mechanical heart valves, like the ball and valve uh, mechanical heart valves that really aren't used anymore. But if someone had one of those in place and were, was on uh, a warfarin for those, uh, for that to prevent stroke in those patients that added aspirin and actually fairly high dose aspirin uh, may actually be uh, have an added benefit. And in those kind of cases, the risk of stroke is so high that the benefit outseeds the risk. But for a large, large number of patients, they just started taking aspirin because their doctor told them one day or they saw on TV they should or a buddy of them told them they should or something along those lines. And they really don't get a benefit. And they 
risk at the risk. And so this study kind of took a look at that. It was a study, again, done from Michigan in patients who were on warfarin. And we'll talk about one of the strikes of the study being that they were all warfarin patients. And it was part of the Michigan Anticoagulation Quality Improvement Initiative. And I'm only going to say that once. And the uh, acronym is MACI2. So um, that's the, uh, the acronym for that. And so this is a group of, of six large uh, anticoagulation clinics uh, kind of scattered throughout Michigan, I would assume uh, uh, affiliated with one of the large health systems, maybe even the University of Michigan system. And they, you know, basically, you know, take care of patients, you know, in a, in a wide area of Michigan and, and regulate their anticoagulation, again, mostly with warfarin. Uh, they, they include academic and community practices. They do accept all forms of health insurance. Um, it includes patients in rural and urban areas with the different censuses and the different uh, anticoagulation clinics ranging from, from several hundreds to 5,000. And when I saw that number, I kind of gulped because, um, uh, again, it's been a long, long time since I've been in a warfarin clinic, but back in my residency where that was part of our, our ambulatory care experience, you know, we had about 600 or 700 patients and we thought that was a lot. So I'm, I'm pretty floored that in, in, in the 21st century that uh, there is a, a clinic who is dealing with 5,000 patients on uh, who are taking warfarin. That just seems like a big, big number to me. But in any event, uh, you know, these, these anticoag clinics, you know, and the studies are pretty clear, anticoag clinics do a very, very good job of keeping people uh, in the therapeutic range better than, than usual care does. What they did in this study then um, is the, the first part of the study uh, had already been published, and they basically just showed that compared to patients just taking warfarin, patients taking aspirin plus warfarin had a significant higher bleeding rates with similar rates of thrombotic outcomes. And so, and which again is what other studies have shown as well. So now this was kind of part two of the study where they wanted to do something about it. And so what they did was they uh, came up with a list of patients, again, who were receiving both uh, aspirin and, and warfarin. And then they used uh, potentially, uh, they, they tried to target patients with potentially inappropriate aspirin use uh, based on an agreed set of criteria. And they basically excluded patients who had, and I would argue that their exclusion criteria was pretty broad because they excluded patients without a history of coronary disease, MI, or a percutaneous coronary invention, patients who had, had a Cabbage patients with peripheral arterial disease, mechanical valve replacement, or use of an LVAD um, who are taking warfarin for atrial fibrillation or venous thrombolysis. Those are the patients that were excluded. And in fact, if you take a look at the supplementary material uh, of the paper, they note that uh, some of the other um, exclusions included things like stroke and uh, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And so, uh, you know, I would argue that, again, some of those exclusion criteria were probably a bit excessive, but I, I see that, you know, the, the, the need for wanting to be safe and, and making sure that you weren't excluded patients who might benefit from a combination antiplatelet and antithrombotic therapy. So I kind of get that, but but I think one of the interesting pieces of, of the study is, is that, you know, that they looked at it that way. So anyway, yeah, if they did look at the patient's chart then, and if the uh, patient, again, ha didn't have any of those things, and their indication for aspirin use was either unclear or potentially inappropriate, they then communicated with the patient's primary care physician or managing specialist, and basically alerted them to this combination use, and then discussed the need of therapy. And I, I'm sure that was a time consuming process, I'm, I'm sure on both sides. So I was I was uh, impressed that they would take the time, again, to do that, the number of patients we're talking about. But they, again, they personally didn't adjust the aspirin use. It was the, the management decisions were actually referred to the managing physician or provider, um, but they did, you know, try to tell them, look, you know, there's no data in these patients and we're just getting harm and stuff like that. They did this intervention from October 2017 to June 30th, 2018. And so it was kind of a pre-post study, basically. Uh, patients were followed up from the time of enrollment until they were 
discharged from the anticoagulation clinic, they were lost to follow up, the end of the study period, or death. And so, I mean, kind of you know, pretty standard there. Given the broad catchment of the hospital network uh, with conference to follow, they did not think that the study of findings were associated with patients either entering or leaving the study during that period, uh, period of time. Data collection was then done by trained abstractors who basically pulled the data from the electronic medical record and then, and then tried to combine it to take a look at what they wanted to. Um, they did, of course, uh, as far as baseline, get uh, patient demographic characteristics, comorbidities, bleeding on thrombosis risk factors, history of bleeding or thrombosis, and then concomitant medications, including antiplatelet agents other than aspirin. Uh, using these factors, they then calculated the HAS-BLED score, which we know is, is, has been validated very nicely to show the risk of bleeding in patients with atrial fibrillation and anticoagulation, and the CHADS-VAS score, which of course has also been validated uh, in multiple studies to show the risk of stroke in patients with, with atrial fibrillation. So they did calculate both those two scores at baseline. Um, and then of course, they were going to use that, you know, uh, to kind of, you know, do, do their statistical analysis and stuff. The primary outcome was the rate of inappropriate use of aspirin over time. So, so the primary outcome was just finding, you know, what percentage of patients uh, really didn't have an indication to be on aspirin and, and then how many of those patients were taken off of aspirin because they had no indication for it uh, uh, based on what their prescribing provider said. But more interestingly, their secondary outcomes were the rate of bleeding with major bleeding being defined as the ISTH criteria, which again, you can look up and it's pretty easy to, but basically kind of divides bleeding into death from bleeding, bleeding into a critical site like uh, the eye or, or the brain, and then kind of non-critical uh, uh, bleeding, which is in most cases, GI bleeding or something like that, um, which it doesn't resolve in, in uh, serious sequelae, basically. They also uh, uh, looked at the incidence of thrombosis in these patients, and that included either ischemic or embolic stroke, TIA, PE, uh, deep venous thrombosis, intercardiac thrombosis, or other uh, unknown clot, basically. They also assessed rates of emergency department visits and hospitalization related to bleeding. So now that they had all this data that they had extracted, they then did um, a, a kind of before and after aspirin prescribing intervention, right? So this is kind of a pre-post study. Um, they did a secondary analysis, however, comparing outcomes before and after the initial time of aspirin decrease. So, and they looked at 24 months prior to the aspirin deprescribing intervention, which I think was a, a, a good way to do that and make sure that there's no um, selection bias, um, you know, or basically bias by indication as well. So this, they then put all this into a linear regression model, which would be the standard way you would do this, or certainly one of the standard ways you do this. And then the model contained all these variables that they pulled, including demographic models, has blood score, CHAS VAS score, stuff like that. Uh, they then did estimate the trajectory of the patient, percentage of patients in the pre-intervention and post-intervention periods separately. And then to test whether those trajectories uh, differed, they did a secondary uh, time series analysis, again, with 24 months prior to the aspirin deprescribing intervention um, as to the interruption time point, basically. So again, kind of complex stats, but that's what you'd expect in this kind of study because you'd have to do some sort of logistic regression analysis or, or a propensity score analysis to basically account for some of the different factors that, that might influence either bleeding or, or thrombosis in these patients. So what did they find and what are their conclusions? We will answer that question right after this word from CE Impact. Are you looking for a place to collaborate with your peers and get CE? Download the CE Impact app. The CE Impact app is a place where pharmacists and pharmacy technicians can take CE courses, attend virtual events, and network with their peers right from your phone. Download the CE Impact app today and get started. So we're talking about, again, as I said at the beginning of the program, kind of a hobby horse of mine, people who are taking anticoagulation for usually 
usually either atrial fibrillation or venous thrombosis, and are taking an aspirin on top of it, especially for primary prevention. Um, as, I, as I noted earlier, the, the, the benefit is, is just not there, in my opinion, and, and you're just dramatically increasing the risk of bleeding for no reason. So what did they find in this study? Uh, they actually looked at quite a number of patients, a total of 6,738 patients who are receiving warfarin without an indication for aspirin. So again, a huge, huge number of patients that was followed up uh, by this anticoagulation group. Mean age in the study, uh, was, was uh, uh, 62 years of age, uh, about 46% of them were, were males. They had been on anticoagulation for uh, an average of about eight months. Uh, most patients received warfarin for either anticoagulation or venous thromboembolism disease. And so, uh, the, again, the primary outcome was, you know, what percentage of patients, you know, were uh, of their entire group of, of patients uh, were on uh, what they considered inappropriate aspirin. And the number was pretty staggering. About 29 to 30% of these patients were taking aspirin for no, no indication, basically. So one out of every three patients in, the, in, in their service were doing that, which is pretty amazing. And fortunately, they were able to, de to decrease that after talking with the prescribing uh, a physician or provider uh, by, 50, by about 50%. So it dropped from about 28% down to about 15%. So not perfect, um, but, but again, a, a huge impact um, in, in decreasing the number of patients, in my opinion, on inappropriate uh, uh, aspirin. And then, of course, they compared, the again, that 24 months before to the post-intervention period. They observed a reduction in the mean percentage of patients with a major bleeding event. The numbers weren't gigantic. It went from 0.31% to 0.21%. Remember, this is you know, a fairly short time period they're looking at, but that was statistically significant um, between the, the interventions. Um, and they, but that, that same analysis did not find a significant increase in the mean percentage of patients with a thrombotic event and just went from 0.21% to 2.4%. Uh, and again, that, that did not reach statistical significance in the pre-post intervention. Uh, before the intervention, a mean of 0.31 patients had a major bleeding event per month compared to 0.21% of patients after the invention, uh, intervention, which uh, translated into a 32% well risk reduction, which is essentially avoiding one major bleeding event for every thousand patients stopping aspirin. Now, again, those numbers may seem small, and I understand that, and I, and I agree with it. I mean, that you know, this intervention um, is probably unlikely to save a you know a ton of lives just because our use of warfarin has kind of declined. Um, that's one thing I would say. Um, and the other is is that you know these were patients all managed in an anticoagulation clinic, so I would argue that their INRs were in, in range probably a lot more than the general population who are who are you know basically have usual care, uh, you know, good anticoagulation clinics can, can often maintain patients in therapeutic range anywhere from 70 to 80% of the time. And we know, of course, that the longer the time you're in therapeutic range, the less your overall risk of bleeding. So, I mean, you know, I would argue that, that those, these numbers would probably be higher if you only looked at usual, usual care, usual intervention. So again, bottom line is, yeah, the numbers weren't gigantic, but it, what did statistical significance and considering that the benefit is zero uh, for, for really being um, on uh, primary prevention for aspirin in these patients. You know, again, any increase in risk, you know, tells you the risk outweighs the benefit and the, and the risk benefit ratio just doesn't favor being on on aspirin. So yes, the numbers were small. And, and I and I do say that that's true. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is, is that there, there's some things that may make these numbers a little bit lower than what you'd find in, in, in the regular population. Uh, they note that overall, they've seen decrease in aspirin use about two years prior to the invention, uh, probably because I, I think the information is finally getting out and the guidelines, as I mentioned from the American College of Cardiology have mentioned this that the need of, of using aspirin in patient, patients on warfarin is, is kind of minor and shouldn't be done in the vast majority of patients. But that being said, again, they still found about, you know, 28% of their patients who were on aspirin for no real reason. So, so that's something to keep in mind. Some other criticisms of the study, of course, is this was not a randomized control trial. 
I don't know how you could do this random. I do this as a randomized control trial. I would probably be unethical to do, especially considering the data that we have now about the harm of aspirin. I, I think you know it would be very difficult to get a study passed by an IRB because of that. But you know it is it is worth noting this is not a, an RCT, so causality will be different to assign. One of the things they note in the paper, and I'm sure this was true, is that that uh, they had a very difficult time reaching consensus on what aspirin use is unnecessary. And again, I think there's still this thought out there that you know um, aspirin in all populations is probably a good thing and that when you reach a certain age you know really no matter what unless you've had a head bleed or something along those lines we well, should probably be on an aspirin a day and uh, you know again I, I i hasten to say that uh, that's not what for example the us uh, upstf says they basically say that there's probably some benefit in, in middle age from from primary prevention in some patients at high risk you know have multiple cardiovascular risk factors but after that there's there's really no benefit and um again this study and other studies basically show that 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 even even in patients with stable cardiovascular disease, there seems to be a small benefit um, of, of being on, on an aspirin a day and the risk of bleeding with concomitant uh, anticoagulation is, is just probably not worth it. So um, again, they, they note they excluded many patients were taking aspirin for secondary prevention, um, but, but uh, again, they, they note that they really wanted to focus on patients who, you know, I, that basically they could get the biggest consensus that, that uh, concomitant aspirin use wasn't necessary. My guess is that, you know, they probably probably, you know, struggled to, to get agreement, especially for secondary prevention of aspirin, um, you know, especially in, in providers who just, just didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I think they, they, you know, kind of reading between the lines, I think they probably did the best they possibly could uh, uh, looking at, at, you know, patients who I think they could get the best agreement on probably wouldn't benefit from being on aspirin. So um, they note that, uh, you know, aspirin is used for primary prevention up to 45% of U.S. adults. And again, you know, we have multiple studies now that show that, that uh, you even in patients at relatively high risk for, for coronary disease, but don't have known coronary disease, the risk of aspirin is, is, is not that great, or the risk of, the, I'm sorry, the benefit of aspirin is not that great, and, and the risk is almost outweighs the benefit as far as GI bleeds and stuff like that. The other problem here is we're all aware DOAC use has largely supplanted warfarin in a lot of patients. And so, you know, one wonders, you know, overall bleeding rates are, are lower with DOACs kind of across the board compared to warfarin. Um, so one wonders, you know, uh, you know, how applicable is it in the patient who's taking, for example, you know, a Pixaban, you know, and, and, and they're also taking an asthma a day, you know, if with the decreased risk of, of major bleed, kind of again, kind of across the board with the DOACs, um, you know, would you still see a, a statistically significant and benefit in, in removing their aspirin? That's, that's a good question that, again, this, this paper really doesn't, doesn't answer. We do know that rivaroxaban is FDA approved uh, actually at a lower dose uh, with aspirin uh, for patients with stable cardiovascular disease or peripheral arterial disease and patients who um, have recently had a revascularization procedure of some sort in peripheral arterial disease. So, so I mean, and that's a, those are both FDA indications where you have an antithrombotic and an A play that they use, use concomitantly. So, you know, again, you know, the, the risk of, of bleed in those studies was, was actually fairly low. Uh, there was a slight increased risk of GI bleed in the studies that got this drug, those FDA approvals. So, you know, again, it, you know, one wonders, um, again, how DOACs would kind of play here. And, and, and so again, there's no real way to tell. But I would say that if you, you know, I always tell my students that, you know, warfarin is never going to completely go away. I mean, there, you know, uh, there's always people who, you know, won't be able to afford the DOACs. They have uh, you know, drug interactions, uh, you know, to, to date uh, patients with triple 
positive um, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or we know that DOACs are less effective than warfarin in those patients. And in patients with, again, a lot of mechanical valves, uh, uh, DOACs are not, are not applicable there. So, you know, uh, warfarin is never going to completely go away. And I think that, that we can, as pharmacists and providers, kind of target the patients who are just taking an aspirin day because, you know, because someone told them or something along those lines and they're just taking an aspirin a day. And I think we can really target them to say, look, you know, there really is no benefit for you. And with, there's definitely an increase of harm. And it's just, you know, it's just not worth it for you to be taking aspirin. So, so that's this week of uh, Game Changers. Um, hope you found it interesting. Again, thank you for listening. As I say, always please hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, but most importantly, head over to ceimpact.com. Help us keep the lights on by considering signing up for some other excellent CE. That is it for this week. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. The information is in the show notes. Please subscribe for all episodes. And we'd love it if you gave us a review while you're there. Tune in next week for another clinical practice game changer.